Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Troy Bramston discusses his latest book, Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. This book is about the real Hawke, chronicling the stunning triumphs and shocking failures, a life riddled with huge flaws and great virtues, marked by redemption and reinvention, which changed Australia and shaped the world. Revelatory and compelling, it will shock and surprise those who think they know the story of Australia's most popular Prime Minister. Peter Khalil will join Bramston in conversation. And now, here's the host of the discussion, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. Before we get going, before we sort of launch into talking about Bob Hawke, I want us all to take a moment out of our busy days, and I know that all of you have been busy in the be- build up to Easter and to Ramadan and everything that's happening in your life. So I want us to take that little moment out of our lives and just to reflect that from wherever we are, from wherever we've been to today, we're of course on land that's not ours, we're on land that's not been ceded. I imagine that you are joining this discussion because you are a type of person that likes stories, because you are a person that likes ideas. And I want you to take that concept and think about the First Nations people. And I reckon in 2022, it's not enough that we just acknowledge that we're on stolen ground, but surely we can also make a commitment to reading the stories of the First Nations people, to understanding the poetry and the song lines of the First Nations people, and then taking that learning, that listening into our barbecues into our dinner parties, into our political discussions. I'd like to introduce you to someone who's been talking politics, I imagine, since he was in primary school. And, of course, I'm talking about the great rep for Wills. I'm talking about Peter Kuehl. I'm delighted to have met him today. He's one of these blokes that's been tirelessly working for all of us over his lifespan. I did hear today that he shared an office with Troy 15 years ago, back when they were sort of in the heartland of of action. And here they are joined up again on Zoom on this readings event. We're delighted to have them here with us. Peter, what a treat it is to actually meet you. Over to you. Enjoy this long conversation with your long-term friend. Thank you so much, Christine, and, and hi, everyone. And I also want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to elders past and present and, and do so as a, a real profound mark of respect for the Indigenous peoples of Australia. And there are many nations uh, who have been here in this place since the beginning of recorded time. That's really, really important. And I'm very, very pleased. And thank you so much to Readings and Christine for hosting us tonight to be part of this online conversation with Troy Bramston and to talk about his biography of Bob Hawke, Demons and Destiny. Here's a, here it is here. There's a little sticker from Readings as well. You'll see that at the back there is a picture of me and Bob, and he means a lot to me, uh, not only because I am the, the current representative of his seat of wills, which he uh, was the MP for for uh, pretty much most of his time as Prime Minister, but also for what he did for myself and my family and, and I think for millions of Australians, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that today. It is really a terrific work this book. And I think what really struck me straight away was the way that Troy packed an emotional punch almost, well, pretty much from the preface. It was searing. It was honest. It went to the core of who Bob is and and what he was about and why he was and uh, the things that drove him, 
the good and the bad. But actually, Troy was probably able to do that because he had a bit of that poetry in this book that went all the way through the work in telling the story and the stories around Bob. But also, uh, I think it's only someone who probably had, as Troy did, this amazing connection with Bob over many decades, many years. And he talks a bit about that as well. So someone who has that connection and is able to then translate for us in this terrific work, the life of Bob Hawke, uh, probably someone who's being able to access some amazing archival documents and and material, the personal papers that Bob was able to share with with Troy to do his research and his work, and the, the, the remarkable number of interviews with key people both in Australia, political leaders and others, but also presidents and prime ministers that Bob worked with internationally. It's truly a remarkable political biography. And I think the other thing to say about it is that there's a bit of a tradition of great political biography of US presidents and so on, a few good ones in Australia. But Troy, I think, with this work, is really has gone to the forefront of some of our great writers who, who can capture this history and these, these people that have made such a significant impact on the lives of Australians and also, frankly, Bob's impact on our place in the world, uh, which is covered in this biography as well. I do want to share very quickly before I ask Troy and and bring him into the conversation, just one little anecdote as to why Bob meant so much to me. I I caught up with him quite a bit when I was a new MP, but also even earlier than that when I'd worked in, in, in and around politics as an advisor and so on. And Troy covers this in a bit in his biography where he talks about what especially in the interview section at the end where Bob talks about things that he gets excited about and animated. Of course, it is the current political events that that rings so true. But I asked Bob in one of our long-ranging conversations over many crownies uh, at his place up in Sydney, what was the policy that, you know, given all the things that he achieved in his prime ministership and his political life, what was the policy area that he thought was the most important and and it didn't really get that much airtime, like all the big ticket stuff that we're all aware of. And he said to me, you know, when he started as Prime Minister, students who finished year 12 were around 30%, but because of policies he put in place, students were got up almost to, to high 80s, almost 90% of students finishing what was then known as HSC. And I just kind of caught in my throat and I looked at him and I said, Bob, I, I was one of those. I graduated in 1990, but the impact that you had on my life, that education that I was afforded, the opportunity for an education for a kid from a migrant background. But it wasn't just that. And I said, Bob, public housing, you know, we, we got given public housing and was state and, and federal as well, but we got access to education and opportunity through that. And we got healthcare through, through Medicare, things that just gave us the ability to, to have a good start in life and to achieve based on our hard work and our um, merit and our dedication and my parents as well. So that's what Bob meant to me and kind of drove me really in many respects to to be part of the Labor Party and that kind of mission to make sure that people have, regardless of their background and equality of opportunity, and Bob was really someone who did that in spades for millions of Australians, regardless of their, their backgrounds. So that's a bit about what Bob meant to me. Now, Troy, there's a lot of reasons to write a book, but tell us listening, what was the purpose for you? Why did you write this book? Well, thanks, Peter. It's uh, terrific to be back at a, a readings to do a readings event online. I'm here in Sydney. Um, let me acknowledge the traditional owners, and Peter's been uh, a good friend of mine and 
former colleague for many years and I've admired him as well. And the fact that you are the representative for Bob Hawke, Cedar Wills, uh, made you perfect um, to be quiz master on in this. In, look, I mean, Bob Hawke was a larger-than-life figure. We all know that. I mean, he was an extraordinary trade union leader in the 1970s and he was a remarkable prime minister who left a vast policy legacy in economic policy, social policy, environmental policy and even around the world. Um, you know, we've never had a Prime Minister who was more popular than Bob Hawke in the post-war era. I was astonished to find that his approval rating reached 78% in 1984, I mean, which is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and no one, no other political figure has come within coo of that since. Um, but I did think that in the final years of his life, the final decades, that we had kind of lost sight of the complete man you know, the sort of light and shade um, was no longer there. Um, he returned to what he was when he became the member for Wills in 1980, which was a sort of a larrikin intellectual celebrity superstar. But, of course, Bob Bork was much, much more complex than that. And I did subtitle the book uh, Demons and Destiny because he had that destiny uh, from his parents from a young age that he was going to do big things, great things, but he was also deeply flawed. Um, mm. and he was open about those flaws, the womanising, the drinking, the fact that he wasn't a particularly good father, wasn't a particularly good husband. So I just thought we needed a new portrait of Hawke and a new book that looked at, you know, an array, array of archival material um, and did a whole lot of new interviews. I mean, of course, I interviewed Bob and he supported the project and gave me access to his papers, but I interviewed more than 100 other people for the book. Um, and my estimate was looking at about a million pages of archival documents. So, you know, I wanted to do a big study, a serious study of this remarkable life, um, but I wanted to get back to uh, the full life, um, the good and the bad, um, the flaws as well as the virtues. Let's just touch on that, on the destiny part, because I, what I found interesting in the work was um, that there's quite a few early chapters around that family background and what, how it shaped his destiny. And both Clem, his father Clem, and his, his mother Ellie were sort of instrumental in providing, you talk a lot about the love and the nurturing that, that Bob grew up in, the affection uh, and the belief that they had in him that really nurtured him, that destiny to a certain respect. I think there was a quote there that Clem in his unpublished memoirs that you quoted from where he, where he quoted Shakespeare and said, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, uh, rough cue them uh, how we will. This idea that the parents had that um, there was something, you know, uh, a greater, a higher force um, directing their son's life. I'm, I was really interested in that because Bob, in later years, as he says in some of the parts of the interviews in the book, he he beca obviously became agnostic um, in his teens after that trip to India, but uh, or over a period of time. But he certainly still felt that there was something driving him, some universal force that was, you know. A bit more difficult to describe for him, but he felt something uh, of a higher order. Do you think that uh, with Bob, it was kind of just basically the answer is that basically the the combination of someone who's just intelligent and talented got that environment of love, nurturing, and belief, and that combination propelled him towards that. Um, and how do you think he saw it himself with your conversations with him? Yeah, I, th I think that's right, Peter. Um, you know, from the earliest moments. You know, literally from the moment he comes into the morning light as a baby, as a newborn baby, 
um, the family legend is that the hospital doctor and the hospital nurse looked at Clemenelli and said, you know, your son is special and he's <clears> going to be destined for great things. Now, this became part of this kind of family legend and he grew up understanding this principle. Um, now, he downplayed notions of divine intervention in his life, but he did tell me because I explored it with him because I wanted to understand it. He described it as guidance. He felt there was some kind of guiding hand in his life pushing him towards doing doing big things. Now, it wasn't really until he was, you know, at university, a, a teenager, that he thought maybe I'll, I'd like to do public service and it was still kind of ill-defined. I mean, his mother did think he would become prime minister one day. But for him, it was sort of a bit of a slower process to get to that point. And when he was at university in Perth, he had a, a terrible motorbike accident um, mm. and he was nearly he nearly died. He was on the critical ill list uh, for weeks and uh, he felt then that his life had been saved. So it was kind of evidence of what his mother was saying, you know, that he had been spared. And from that moment, he decided to make the most of it. And there's no doubt that the nurturing environment you refer to um, had a big impact um, and uh, he was obviously very talented and very smart but he needed a bit of guidance and a bit of direction he was a bit of a he was a bit of a wild child um, and uh, that sort of sense of guidance I think did help him find his path in life. How much of it too was uh, the the kind of altruism that he demonstrated throughout his life that was drawn from his earlier, upbringing and the, and the Christian values, the ethics that, that, that came from his parents, um, and how much of it was really just the ambition or the drive. A lot of us as politicians and people in public life, you know, wanting to get elected, it's a hard job, but you've got to have a lot of self-belief. Clearly, Bob had a lot of self-belief and that was nurtured, but how much of it, where, where do you see the sort of combination of that altruism and that self-belief and how they combine? Was that the magic spice? Was that the magic combination with Bob? Yeah, look, I think so. I think he certainly was not someone uh, shy about his talents and his abilities. Um, he was certainly seen as throughout his entire life as being somewhat arrogant, um, although I push back against notions that he's a narcissist because he may have showed elements of that in his personality, um, but you can't be a collegiate and cooperative trade union leader or prime minister willing to cede power to others if you are a complete narcissist. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have that. He was uh, very very cooperative, um, very collegiate, very collaborative um, in his professional life. So it took him a while, you know, like he he went to university, he then got a Rhodes Scholarship and, and went, went to Oxford University and still wasn't clear what he would do. It was only when he decided um, that he had this interest in the law and in economics and he put those two things together and thought that means industrial relations. And so he did a thesis on industrial relations at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and that sort of led to a pathway into the trade union movement. And um, and that was where he really found an outlet for his talents, I guess, in the late 1950s. And it was pretty soon, you know, after becoming the ACTU advocate in 1958, that he was already being written up in the newspapers as a potential future prime minister. So think about that for a second. I mean, all through the 60s and through the 70s, He's talked about as a future prime minister. I can't think of any other person in Australian history who has had that sense of destiny uh, about about him. So I'm going to ask you about those ACTUs, which are covered in the, in, um, the middle chapters as well, the second section of the, of the book. Um, very different time, obviously, but how much of a proving ground was that as far as developing skills and his ability and sharpening 
that focus and also burnishing the the, the myth or the or the the mismaking around him um, uh, around greatness and the potentiality for greatness. Um, I, I, I can't think of another sort of sector in Australian society today that would have had that kind of importance that was kind of not in politics but part of politics and that the public really linked to. Um, uh, was that a, a really special uh, factor in his success, the ACTU years? Yeah, I mean, as I say, he found an outlet for his talents. He was first the ACTU research officer and advocate uh, from 1958 until 1970. And then on the 1st of January 1970, he, he became the ACTU president. I mean, he was a totally different type of trade union leader than we've seen in Australia before. I mean, back, back then, the trade union movement represented about 50% um, of Australian workers um, and uh, he was dazzling, he was exciting, he was innovative. I mean, he used the media like nobody else had ever done before. Um, mm. Previous trade union leaders were a bit shy um, about, about using the media. He loved the media. Uh, he made himself available for newspapers and radio and television every day of the week. He worked incredibly long hours, but it was in the commission. You know, he didn't have, he had a law degree, but he, he wasn't a barrister. Um, and he was the first in-house counsel that the ACTU had. And a lot of trade unions, the industrial bench, the employer representatives were like, who is this guy showing up to represent the ACTU? But he won them over within the first moments of his very first case um, in 1958, 1959. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, he would he would dazzle the bench uh, with his presentations. He used facts and figures. He used logic and reason and emotion. He would put his hands into his pockets and take them out again. He'd, he'd walk around the podium. He'd, you know, thrust his hands into, in, into the air. He'd do all sorts of things. He was a very vivid and animating figure. And his central idea was that when you set wages, you need to take into account um, not just the capacity of a company to pay, but productivity um, as well. And so workers that were making um, productivity gains should ref have that reflected in their pay packet. And so this was a kind of a revolutionary idea and he won a number of very significant wage cases. Uh, he became, you know, a hero to the Australian working people. Um, and soon he started to contribute to public debates on political issues, policy issues, and, of course, he made that his platform for President um, of the ACTU. And so by the time he got to that position in 1970, he was already being written up as the second most powerful man in Australia. And so, you know, his star was ascendant um, and the future was pregnant with promise about where is he going to go next? And of course, he had the prime ministership in his sights. At that stage. And in some respects too, kind of set up the ACTU as this, this ground, this platform for uh, the next generation as well as we saw of, of political leaders uh, because of the way he he went about it. He really did change the paradigm in that respect. I do want to talk about his time in government, um, uh, Troy, and this this point about legacy because, you know, there's been a bit of debate about legacy in our politics and I think our current Prime Minister, not to get too political, it's in the middle of a campaign, but he was asked a question uh, about what his legacy would be. He said he didn't believe in legacies. Now, I, f I found that quite remarkable. I, f yeah, I find it unbelievable. Too. Because as Prime Minister of a country of Australia, you you do create a legacy, whether it's good or bad, that's judged by history and, and by um, biographers and so on. Hawke left a tremendous legacy by all uh, measures, uh, objectively speaking. 
But let's talk a bit about that because his time as prime minister was really quite historically significant for our nation. And you, you go through that in, in a lot of detail. Um, it's that time that he really fulfilled the destiny, right? And he actually achieved. So that pregnant promise that you talked about, sometimes people you know, fall by the wayside a bit and they never fulfill all this big hype around them. He went the next level, really, if we're honest about it and we, we're objective, he achieved a tremendous legacy. He did. And, look, many of his Cabinet colleagues uh, were sceptical about whether he could make the transition successfully into politics. Of course, he gets elected as a member for Wills in 1980. Um, and less than three years later, he had taken the Labor leadership from Bill Hayden and found himself as Prime Minister. So, I mean, it's pretty an, it's pretty extraordinary journey, a very rapid rise. Um, but, of course, he had been prone to emotional outbursts. He could get cranky with journalists. Um, mm. He had given up the drink when he went into Parliament. He didn't give up the womanising and he still had some affairs in, in office. Um, but his colleagues were amazed at how well he ran a government and ran a cabinet. So a large part of the book, Peter, is actually talking about the kind of Prime Minister that he was and how he led. I mean, it sounds easy. Uh, to be Prime Minister. You know, you run a cabinet effectively, you respect the public service, you welcome frank and fearless advice, you have a good work ethic, uh, you you know, you work hard, um, you can communicate policies effectively, you can implement policies, um, you know, you manage a party cleverly. Um, these things seem easy to say. They're harder <laughs> than you think. Um, They're very difficult. There are a couple of things that stand out for me was, just one example was uh, his position on um, Asian migration. I mean, I got told by cabinet ministers that were with him at the time, there was a kind of a push during those that period to, you know, there was a push by, I think, the opposition at the time, Howard, to to stop migration from Asia, Asian migration. It was kind of popular. Uh, Bob just absolutely refused to, to uh, limit our immigration policy based on race and ethnicity, and he stood firm on that. Yeah, he admired John Curtin and Ben Shifley and the great post- War immigration program. He defended that strongly uh, when it came under pressure from within um, the political system, and some Australians were, you know, concerned about the pace of migration and so on. He was always a big believer in multiculturalism. Thought we were stronger um, because of it, and so that kind of style of government, um, I think, sort of enabled the vast policy legacy. And we all know about the economic reforms, the float of yeah. the dollar the fall of the tariff wall, some privatisations, um, the accord and superannuation. I'd also looked at, I think, how the, some of the social policy legacy, which sometimes gets a little bit taken for granted, I think, things like yeah. the Sex Discrimination Act, you know, which transformed everyday life for Australian women. Uh, Medicare, we take that for granted, I think. Um, and other things too, you know, like uh, you've mentioned, Peter, about the massive increase in high school completion rates, yeah, yep. um, expansion of the trade sector and the university sector. Um, these were big These were big things that were achieved. And, of course, the environmental legacy is important, yeah. as well, whether it's saving Daintree or the Kakadu or, um, yeah. or, or stopping the Franklin Dam uh, being built in Tasmania. We tend, when we talk about the Hawke government period, to talk about that economic reform, the accord, deregulation, um, you know, uh, floating the dollar, all of that kind of stuff, all very, very important, all setting up those economic reforms, setting up decades of economic growth and prosperity. But just that little list, uh, small list, not, it's actually not a small list, that list of social policy, environmental policy that you mentioned, that that is massive. Uh, and, and people forget, and we do take it for granted, um, people forget 
how it completely reshaped this country uh, for the better. Yeah, and I think we, should, we also should, should acknowledge, um, you know, a very effective public service, um, great uh, staff that he had working in the government, and, of course, the ministers sitting around the Cabinet table. I mean, it's the most talented Cabinet, I think, we've had in, since Federation with the big titanic figures, whether it's Paul Keating or Lionel Bowen or yeah. Gareth Evans and Bill Hayden, Susan Ryan, Mick Young, Peter Walsh. I mean, a lot of these people were big figures in Australian politics, big yep. personalities. Hawke was yep. able to manage them effectively, let them do their job, um, wasn't an interventionist prime minister, um, but he was able to harness that talent, you know, and share power, and that is really important. And he was able to take the Labor Party and the country through a period of profound change. You know, he challenged what we believed in, and at the end of that nine years, we became a smarter country, a more prosperous country, a more equal country, a fairer country, a prouder country. I mean, he wanted to make us feel better about ourselves, have pride in ourselves, be more respected on the world stage. I mean, it is extraordinary. And, of course, there were things that he got wrong. There were mistakes, not least of all the 1990 recession. Um, Hawke wanted to do more on Indigenous land rights. Um, and, you know, there were setbacks. There were political challenges. He was behind in the poll sometimes. There was dissent in Cabinet or caucus. Um, but on the whole, he did leave that legacy that you talk about, Peter, and I think that's really important. You know, he was in politics to make a difference, um, yep. and he certainly did that. And he changed our country, um, and I felt it. I grew up in that period, as I said, and it impacted myself and my family. I want to touch, uh, if we can, just on the legacy left on the world stage. You, you, you briefly touch on that. Often we talk about um, the Hawke government's uh, um, you know, APEC as a big achievement and, and what Hawke was involved with there. But also, let's not forget uh, how instrumental he was with respect to the apartheid, anti-apartheid movement yeah. and the work that he did in that space. And I wonder if you could sort of talk through a bit about that and how he his recollections on that, how important it was for him. Yeah, look, one of the amazing discoveries I made when researching this book, Peter, was to find a diary that Hawke kept while he was on a ship on his way to Oxford University in 1953. Um, you know, so uh, he's only in his early 20s and he stops off in apartheid South Africa um, and he witnesses the brutal segregation that was taking place there and he writes in the diary, in his own handwritten writing, that there one day will be a day of reckoning. So then you flash forward 20 years and he's on the world stage working through the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting to end apartheid in South Africa and, of course, when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison, um, he came to Australia and thanked Bob Hawke for the role that he played. And that, that gets to another point, which is, you know, I was able to interview a number of international figures for this book, George Bush Sr., Brian Mulroney, the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, John Major, the British Prime Minister, and others. And they respected Hawke as a leader on the world stage. They listened to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They liked how he assessed different issues, and he tried to position himself in this final decade of the Cold War as a kind of a mediator between the mm. East um, and the West. Um, and, you know, I thought this was sort of a sceptical, I, I treated this mm. with a sort of a sceptical eye when Hawke was telling me about it, but when I did the interviews with those world leaders and looked at the documentary record, the diaries, um, the phone records, I mean, it all stacks up. Um, yep. He was a big player on the international stage. and. I know you've had a background, of course, in international uh, policy making and international affairs, and 
Um, you too would no doubt be be familiar with uh, Hawke's reputation on on the world stage, which which continued right up until his death. And he did fail to tell me about it too, Troy. Over many many hours of uh, having a drink uh, and regaling me with his stories of his uh, his exploits on the international stage, whether it was meetings with Margaret Thatcher or uh, Ronald Reagan or Gorbachev or whatever, it was truly a remarkable time in world history, and he played a significant role in that. I want to touch on um, this tension between the demons and the destiny, right? You know, we talked a lot about the destiny. And he, I think, you know, despite or notwithstanding some of the mistakes made that you obviously cover in the book as well, he, we could safely say he fulfilled his destiny in, in quite an um, emphatic manner. Do you think the demons that he struggled with, uh, did they hold him back in any way from doing more or was it really just part of who he was and it actually was all part of the one character, if you like, and it was kind of a necessary part of his journey and his story? Yeah, look, I mean, he really struggled with these demons his entire life and um, the drinking a lot of people know about, they saw it. I mean, he could be a terrible drunk in public and um, in the 1960s and 70s and when I interviewed his ACTU <laughs> colleagues, people like Bill Kelty or Ralph Willis, um, they told me that he could be a loathsome, horrible, embarrassing drunk. Sometimes he might drink 20 beers in one session. So he loved the drink. Um, a lot of people thought he could never give it up, um, but he did give it up when he, he became yeah. Prime Minister. He gave it up, in fact, um, just ahead of becoming the member for Wills in 1980. Um, the other demon, of course, is the womanising. Now, a lot of people have known about the womanising, I wanted to explore this and examine it in more detail. I was able to interview Blanche Del Puget, his second wife, uh, two of his children, um, Susan and Stephen, and, and the, the womanising was a big part of his life. He had multiple affairs, and I set out to write this book, you know, frank and fearlessly. I didn't want to hide anything back. I had to tell the truth. And he was uh, someone who did struggle with um, his, his love for betting other women, let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, I got access to letters that he wrote to Hazel when he was at Oxford University in the early 1950s, and in these letters he bears his soul about how he was struggling, struggling to control his desire to have sex with other women. Now, that's in his letters in the 1950s, um, and I was able to interview a number of the women he had relationships with right through the prime ministership, and it's a big part of Bob's life. Now, the thing to say about this is that, Bob never pretended to be someone that he wasn't. He wasn't mm. a conservative Christian family values politician. Um, he was op- up front. He was open about his flaws. He admitted his infidelity. He admitted the drinking problem. Um, and people accepted him for that. And so I couldn't ignore that. I had to examine it in the book. It'll make people a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit shocking sometimes to read, but it's the yeah. real Bob Hawke, you know. And I talked to Bob about these things as well, and he was open about them as well. And and so that's why I tried to, you know, write a book about about the complete man. As I was mentioning earlier at the top of our conversation, the kind of searing honesty that runs through the book, um, you say it might be shocking, but I just think it's honest and it's real. It feels genuine um, because you're, it's not a hagiography of Bob. It's not, you know, it doesn't kind of, uh, you know, cover over the flaws to try and make, cast him in a good light. There's a real searing honesty to this work and, and I think that's why it makes it a really fantastic uh, biography. Um, there is this thing about him, and you, you've spent probably more time with him than I did, but I, I did have the opportunity over the years to spend a bit of time with him, as, I, as I've noted. His ability to actually 
connect with people, make them feel special. I mean, even his touchingness, I, 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 that I experienced it the first couple of times where he hugged me. He didn't just hug me. He put his arm inside my jacket. Really? <laughs> I got the inside the jacket hug. I'm like, what's going on here, Bob? But but he was that kind of very um, sensual person. Obviously, he, he craved or he needed the touch of other human beings. It, you know, it could come across as creepy, I think, for some people. But it, for me, it was kind of like, oh, he's just a very touchy person. Now, I come from a Middle East or a North African background where it's not un- abnormal for men to hold hands or hug or whatever. So it was fine yeah. with me, right? We, we kiss and we hug. That's not a problem. Bob was a bit like that, actually. He really had that kind of human touch, was part of um, that sensual touch. But he had that charisma, like the charisma that he had that people were attracted to, you know. Tell us a bit about that and how how important that was um, to him and, 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 and the work that he did and, and his life. There's no doubt, Peter, that he had a real connection with the Australian people um, that went back many, many years. The, the secret is is that he actually liked people. But he, he said to me, this this is often happens in politics. People, uh, Politicians are afraid to meet people. They're nervous. Yeah. They're scared. Uh, they're worried about what would happen. They might try to limit their interactions. Um, he loved meeting people, and people knew yeah. that. They can see it. They could see it. And so there are so many stories that Labor MPs or everyday people told me about um, seeing him out in public and how people would come up to him and want to get a kiss or shake his hand or get a pat on yeah. the back or something like that. You know, Wendy Phaeton was the a WA MP and she told me that he came to campaign with her in the 1983 election and she described him as like the Pope. She said people just wanted to be able to physically touch him. So, yes, you're right. He wanted to touch people. He liked to do that, liked to hug and kiss and shake hands, but people liked to do that to him. And he just said to me, it's because I love people, um, they know that, and they love me. And this was the story throughout his life. Um, so so tell us more, Peter, about in the final moments about your meetings and interactions with him, given that you're in the unique position of holding the same seat that he did in Parliament. Well, I asked him, um, uh, one of my first meetings, I, I when I became the MP, when I when I first became the MP, that that time I met him there, I said, Bob, can, have you got any advice for me? Um, you know, as a new member for Wills, what should I be doing? And you know, um, and he said, Oh, mate, he was very honest. He said, Mate, I was prime minister for most of the time, so I was hardly able to give you the best advice about being a local MP. But you know what? Even though he was honest with me about that, people still love him. Like I walk down Sydney Road, and people still stop me, and when I, I love people too, so I'm talking to people I'm engaging with them and they tell me stories about Bob and they and they tell me a story about when they met Bob or when Bob came through Sydney Road when they were a little kid and they got to meet him and how special it was for them so he still had that presence even though he was prime minister at the local level and I think um, some of his staff one of them who ended up working for me for a couple of years she went all the way through Mimi who you know um, she told me that he used to come down to the local uh, electorate uh, uh, once every week or so and, and and go and meet the locals as well. So he did put a bit of time in, even though he was prime minister for most of that period. What I found really special about um, spending time with him, though, was you're sort of there with someone who who had an impact on your life, was larger than life, but still was able to look you in the eye and connect with you uh, at your level and make you feel good about yourself. And that, to me, that ability, that love that he was radiating was was something I felt you know, because he cared about people. He actually cared about making a difference in people's lives. I don't know whether 
in the past politics was such was he unusual in that sense that we got to a point now where more more politicians than not are afraid of of engaging with people I, I don't know what it was like with all the rest of them back then I do know that um and maybe I'm different because I, I didn't sort of go all the way through in politics I had different experiences before politics but I think people give me they give me energy help me do my job better I, I can actually represent them better I get ideas from them I get energy from them as well and sure you get the usual sometimes you get the you know the person who has a go at you but you know what I'll, I'll talk to them as well uh, let them have a crack. That's their right. Yeah, I think I think Bob was like that as well. It did seem to recharge him or energize him. And there are some good stories in the book about how Bob might be very tired or might be uh, a bit worn out. Um, and he would go into a bar and people would want to buy him a drink. A, a drink. It became a badge of honor to say you'd bought uh, Bob Hawke a drink. You know, this is before he's prime minister. Um, and he loved meeting people. He he, he just really did. And um, he he was energized by it as well. Um, and so that is a that is a big part of his life. And um, you know, the other thing, Peter, is is that when I was you know interviewing him, and I was fortunate to do the very last interview he ever gave, just a few uh, months before he died. Um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't pushing a legacy. He didn't say to me, "Oh, Troy, make sure that you write this in the book. Um, make sure that you know you say this about me." He was really relaxed about everything. He was comfortable with his life. Sure, he wanted to talk about things and was happy to say that this was a, an achievement and so on but he he didn't push it he didn't he didn't believe that he needed to argue the case for something I don't think he needed to Troy like he when we talk about fulfilling his destiny he certainly did that emphatically um and achieved so much I don't think he needed to shape the story he trusted you as the biographer to to do your job uh in doing that as honestly as you can and I think you've achieved that in this book um, I was going to say too, with a little bit of time that we got, we had left, one of the things that I, I, you know, in spending a bit of time with him as well that I, I found so amazing was that he did really animate. He became really animated when you talked about current political events, yeah. and and that rings true. I think you touch on that a few times. When I spent time with him, he really fired up and got excited to talk about what was happening now. He wasn't stuck in the past, current events, and and I was meeting him as a foreign policy advisor early on. You know, fifteen. He wanted to talk about. The foreign policy of the Labor government, for example, you know, what are we going to do here with this country? How are we going to manage this relationship? He was still engaged in, in that way, um, and particularly around the, the current politics. I think you touch on it in the book or in his interview uh, about his views about previous prime ministers. We both worked for one in Kevin Rudd. Um, I remember <laughs> remember when I met with Bob, and he said, "Oh, how's your boss going?" And I said, uh, "What do you mean, Bob? We're doing pretty well." And this, remember, was a time where Kevin was inching closer to similar popularity rates that that uh, Bob had, right? So I kind of clicked on. I knew where Bob was going with this. I, I think he wanted some reaffirmation. And I said, Bob, the Australian people will never love a prime minister as much as they loved you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and he, after that, he was I was his best mate. He's like, let's go play golf, Peter. <laughs> he just loved it because it affirmed for him that the Australian people loved him and even though Kevin was kind of popular at the time, that it wasn't anywhere near challenging that special relationship that he had. Look, he, he did give some pretty harsh assessments on, on Australian prime ministers in the book. Um, people can buy the book to, to, to hear that. Um, I should say quickly too that um, I interviewed all the prime ministers who came after Bob um, and they were all very, very flattering, very praiseworthy of Bob, but he wasn't so praiseworthy about them. 
<laughs> but that is that that is the typical Bob Hawke uh, style. But um, look, he's a larger than life figure, and you know people across the divide um, can still respect and admire him and appreciate what he achieved. Last question: Greatest Prime Minister? Yes or no? I think he's the greatest Prime Minister post-war. My only hesitation uh, is probably John Curtin, who was even yes. more popular than Bob Hawke, according to Gallup polls. And I think John Curtin had a very difficult job um, during World War II. So that would be my only hesitation. And you, you know what, Bob would would probably would probably agree with that. Yeah, yeah, you love Curtin. I want to ask, actually, just as a very last question before I thank you. Uh, Troy, given that you had one of the last interviews with him and, and that you knew him so well, Peter, did Bob Hawke, uh, was he a content man at the end there? Was he content? Oh, look, he was content. He was happy with his life. Um, he, you know, the last interview is, is how I begin the book. He was somewhat emotional. You know, he got very emotional talking about his parents, Clem and Ellie, how much he loved them, how much they loved him. He was very pleased that he had seen Paul Keating just a few months mm. earlier and they had set aside any differences. He talked about how much he loved Blanche and how much he loved Hazel. He saw nothing wrong with loving two women um, in, in his life. Um, but the sad thing was he was he was fading, you know, and he was he told me that he was happy to to let go and he'd achieved and done everything he said in his life um, and it was and it was coming to an end. So he was ready for that and expecting to go. And um, it was very emotional actually and and difficult for me. But um, you know, I wasn't surprised when he did die just a few months later. Um, but you know, he left he left us um, in a very happy and content place. And I think if we if we can all do that at the end of our lives and be open about what we've achieved and and still have some regrets, um, that's a that, that that's a good thing. But he he wasn't bitter, um, he wasn't sad, he wasn't angry, he, he was content. We can't sort of end on a better note, can we, Peter? What, what are, no, what's not feeling on that? And it's absolutely that it's such a great read because that emotional punch is there from the beginning right through that last interview. That, that Troy records and it, it runs right through and that feeling that we have about what, how Bob touched our lives and changed the country, it, it runs right through it. So well done, Troy. It's a wonderful book. Well, thanks so much, Peter, and thanks, Christine, and, and to Readings for hosting us. Uh, congratulations to you, Troy, and to you, Peter. Thank you so much for asking those questions and for sharing your own experiences and insight. I feel like that everyone that's joined us tonight and everyone that will be listening in the future feel like we are we got a little snapshot we got a little treat yeah. and uh, on behalf of the people of Australia on behalf of readings it's been wonderful thank you so much to both you Peter and to you Troy stay safe keep reading thank you, <laughs> thank you. thanks Troy thanks Christine thanks everyone bye bye now you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast at our website we'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callingham. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you.